Hello and welcome to Wide Left Sports. Today I am joined by Seattle Mariners beat writer for the Seattle Times, Ryan Divish. How are you doing this morning, Ryan? I'm good. How about you? I'm doing really good. Thank you for um, agreeing to come on to our podcast and do this. It's really awesome to interview someone that interviews people for a living. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, that's it's it's a weird job that I have sometimes if you think about it, the basics of it all. <laughs> it's weird, but also I'm sure pretty rewarding and fun. Yeah, it, it has its moments, definitely. Awesome. So... To start this off, why don't you just give us a little bit of an introduction of yourself? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, obviously, my name is Ryan Divish. I was born and raised in uh, Haver, Montana. That's uh, where I'm currently sitting at right now. I'm back home during the off season, visiting my family and my girlfriend. Um, and, you know, a pretty normal existence. Played sports growing up through high school, you know, wild little league, baseball, too. Um and then when I got to college, I, I kind of knew I always wanted to be a journalist, but I didn't know. I guess I wasn't exactly ready for college, maybe the way it's supposed to be. So I kind of wanted to play baseball after school, after high school and in college. And then just like the, the offers I had were all junior colleges and my parents were against it and I got hurt. So I just kind of said, oh, I'm just going to go to school. Uh, I went to school for a year at MSU Northern to because I had some academic scholarships there and just to get my generals. And I went to Missoula for one semester and I was just, just didn't go to school very much. And I almost flunked out and a buddy of mine called and asked me if I was interested in playing still. So I went back to Dickinson state university uh, and played four years of baseball. And then got a teaching degree there because that they didn't have a whole lot at Dickinson. I think it was truck driving, nursing, and teaching. And the truck driving class was only like, I don't know, 10 weeks. So I couldn't really be a truck driver. <laughs> so uh, I got my got my teaching degree, and I did my student teaching in Frenchtown, Montana. And I thought, I was about, I don't know, a month into it, and I thought, I can't do this. I hate these kids. <laughs> so I convinced my parents to let me go back to journalism school in Montana and uh university of montana and i was a lot more ready like i have really bad add and so like i just didn't understand that at the time that i ha that's what i was dealing with and so like i was a lot better a little bit more mature went back to montana got my journalism degree and just kind of got lucky um my first job was in you know after seven and a half years of college my first job was in a uh, haver daily news and then i went to the idaho state journal um and i was working there i'd been covering idaho state football and uh basketball and about nine months into that uh the news tribune in tacoma called me and asked if i was interested in in coming back i had done an internship there in 2000 and they were really cool i, I must have did something right there <laughs> so i went to tacoma worked there for i don't know six i went there in 2006 worked there till about 2012 or 14 so eight years and then the seattle times called me so i mean yeah i just kind of fortunate you know like a lot of times with journalism it's often not about where you want to go it's whether or not somebody leaves the paper that you want to get to because a lot of guys stay at the job forever and so i just kind of the timing worked out for a few different things and i ended up at the times and you know i mean like not really it's not exactly what i was expecting growing up in Havre, montana you know you always talk about you want to work for big newspaper or at that time sports illustrator espn and and you know to get to where i'm at now it's pretty lucky that is awesome. So you mentioned Haver quite a bit. I um, interviewed Casey Fitzsimmons, and he talked about how Chester shaped his life and his career path. 
how did Havers shape your career path? No, fits you pretty well, actually. Yeah, um, it's it's just it keeps me pretty grounded. You know, you come from a small town; it it really does provide you a different way of growing up. Um, in the Northwest, especially the Seattle area, people are super passive aggressive. So instead of like if they have a problem with you or they don't like something you're doing, they'll email you. They'll email your boss or they'll email everybody else about it before actually telling you. And me, I don't have that kind of filter. And so I just kind of say what I think. I think that's helped me a little bit because I'm kind of brutally honest. Um, And just like, you know, for me, I go home every year uh, after the season's over with my mom calls it my reality check. Uh, You know, you go from doing what I do where you're traveling on the road and doing all this stuff to a town that you can only drive 25 miles an hour in and there's five stoplights. You know, it does provide you with like, you know, um, a realization that, you know, it's just a job. You know, like for my my friends and family that are still here, I'm just Ryan, you know, or Div. They don't even call me Ryan all the time, but it's not about my job or anything like that. Um, so that's cool. I mean, like, it just, it really is, you know, and when you're a kid, like, I couldn't wait to get out of this place and and get out of Montana. I thought that there was so much more of a world out there. My parents, you know, were really cool about when I was younger, making sure that we went places and saw different things and experienced different things. But, um you know, then you get older, you spend half your life figuring out a way to get back here too. So I, I just like kind of the people and, um, just the slower lifestyle. Uh, I miss them, you know, like when you, when you have to spend hours a day commuting, I live in Tacoma and commuting to Seattle for games, you know, you're in the vehicle for an hour each way, oh, yeah. stuff like that. You miss, you miss the lack of traffic and lack of people. So I'm, you know, I, I find it like very refreshing to come home, but you know, I know where kind of my, my real home is, is that's out in Tacoma, but it's, it's, it's important. It's just, you know, for me and a lot of people don't, but my, my four, four or five of my high school friends that they were my best friends in high school, we're still really close. We have a text thread. We try to meet up whenever we can. And, you know, you don't, a lot of people don't have that. So, it, you know, it keeps me pretty grounded into who I am and reminds me of who I am and where I came from. Definitely that blue pony and Haver pride runs deep. I know my dad's from Haver and yeah. he definitely has it. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. And I, I just, it's funny. I was in Las Vegas, um, a week ago and I saw your uncle Chuck when I was there, I ran into him at the Cosmo. So, uh, he was with one of my buddies from high school. So yeah, it's just, you just run into it. It's, and it's funny. Like you grow up in small town, Montana, but you know, everybody around the state, like I said, I know I've known Casey Fitzsimmons since he was in high school. Uh-huh. You know, you just bump into him. You run him in the most random places. You know, I was wearing a, I was wearing a Grizz hat, uh, or a Grizz t-shirt in New York running Central Park and I was out running and I just heard his go Grizz from across the way and I kind of <laughs> ran over there and it was a kid I went to college with you know it was like you just never know and so like I, I like that sense of community that Montana has you know I like my bosses don't necessarily like some of the stuff you know I, I want I joked that with my buddies that I was, I acted like the dudes on Yellowstone before Yellowstone ever came out. You know, <laughs> my, my one boss, he goes, why does he have to be such a cowboy all the time? And I'm not a cowboy. God, I've got like three concussions from riding horses, but you know, they, you know, it's just kind of the mindset you have in Montana. Like you just say what you think, 
right if you you disagree with something my dad just taught me that if you disagree with something you can say that you don't believe in it it doesn't make you wrong and you know if you say it in a proper way and respectfully you know and that's kind of what i've done and maybe it's alienated some people along the way but ah, i don't really worry about it too much (laughs) so everyone kind of has their role model growing up who is yours I mean, like, I think obviously my dad was my biggest one. He was tough. My dad was tough. He was a, he was a drill sergeant in the army, um, you know, for a long time. And then, you know, came back home to Haver and my friends were terrified of him because he could yell and curse and, you know, just like he could do it, you know, and he just taught me a lot about discipline. And I know I, like, like I said, with the ADD stuff and they didn't have that when I was growing up, you know, I'm 46. So when I was in a grade school, uh, you know, they didn't have ADD. I was just a bad kid that couldn't sit still and couldn't stay on focus. Um, but, you know, he just was, he always protected me in the sense that like, you know, a lot of different stuff where I could have been, um, you know, where people could have done harm to me. He protected me. And a lot of times where I could have done harm to myself, I had a horrible, I had a horrible temper and horrible, uh, you know, just, sense of like the world was against me I guess a little bit of little man syndrome you know and he helped me kind of understand that you know and it's it's been important you know, I've had other role models along the way like there's a an editor at the News Tribune in Tacoma named Dale Phelps he was a sports editor at the time I mean I pretty much owe my career to him he got me you know he remembered me from my internship he believed in me he thought I was good enough him and this other guy named Paul Miller when I first got to the news tribune I wanted to cover college football and they were like no no you're gonna be our baseball writer you're gonna be our Mariners writer one day you know you can play baseball you understand baseball better than most you're gonna be our Mariners writer one day and you wait and see you'll love it and I was kind of resistant to it and then pretty soon you know it just happened and they were right so you know even when I was gonna leave the news when I was looking at leaving the times for the news Tribune Dale who's the executive editor at the time so you need to leave for your professional career and for where you want to go going to the Seattle Times which was a direct uh, you know competition with the news Tribune in Tacoma at the time she's like you need to go up there this is we've kind of outgrown this place so you know he's definitely one as well that is awesome so you mentioned that you went to journalism school in Missoula did you cover Grizz sports while you were there yeah, I did. Um, I mean, I was a sports editor for, I think, two semesters. Uh, I bartended to help pay for school or pay for my finances, so it made it tough to be a sports editor for much longer. Uh, I covered a little bit of Grizz football. Um, you know, I was a columnist, covered some volleyball, covered soccer when I didn't know anything about soccer. <laughs> but, yeah, I was working for the Kaiman the school newspaper was really big for me. You know, I, there were a lot of um, – um, writers and journalists that were way better and way more experienced than me at the school paper at that time and I being as competitive as I was I worked really hard to try and keep up with them and that helped shape me you know one of them Kevin Van Balkenberg he writes for ESPN you know he so it was like um it was and then Chad Dundas uh he was working for the athletic for a long time covering MMA so the, oh. you know that made it better um for me but yeah i loved it i loved missoula i love everything about missoula like i said i always say if i if i won the lottery tomorrow i would live in two places missoula and maui and uh you know hopefully i can win that lottery right that's everyone's dream and missoula is a really nice town it's really a fun atmosphere with college there yeah that's great so you mentioned you have kind of a tough skin and in your job you have to have you know you have to have that 
So how did you adjust to having critics? Um, I mean, I guess for me, like, uh, I think all, you know, I've always had the tougher skin. You know, you have coaches and stuff. I remember having coaches in middle school and high school basketball and my Legion coach, you know, they were tough on me and they were, you know, because I, I probably deserved it, you know, but they cared. Um, so like uh, hearing criticism doesn't bother me. Um, I do have like this complex though, where like, it's like, you know, my dad I get, must get it from my dad, but like, you know, you watch a, a movie like the fugitive or something where they're framed, the guy's framed. So like if somebody accuses me of doing something wrong when I know I didn't, or I didn't have any intent or anything like that, then I get pretty reactive. But I think over time, you just realize like, especially with Twitter, like just ignoring it or muting the people is just easier than, than getting into rounds and rounds and rounds of arguments. Cause some people just have a lot of free time to go back and forth and nothing you can say is really going to convince them very often. So I just kind of let it slide, you know, I mean, like, and then there are other times where the criticism is absolutely deserved, you know, and it makes you better. So, you, you know, you can't just brush it off and, you know, ignore it on first first glance. You have to at least look at it and see. All right, is this a valid criticism, or are these people just bitter and angry because you know their team isn't winning or whatever? It's it's funny is like this whole thing about how oh, the media, like New York media and Philly media, is so tough compared to this media. And I mean, it's not necessarily true because most of the writers. Like if I'm a reporter, I don't write my own opinion. I'll write some analysis stuff, but I don't, you know, I don't write my own opinion. Mm -hmm. You know, the columnists do. And like I think a lot of people think construe like sports talk radio and guys yelling on sports talk radio as media as the same job as what I have. Well, hold on, it's two different things. You know, and I always tell people like, Oh, you need to you need to get tougher. You need to you need to get tougher with, with Scott Service or with Pete Carroll or whatever. And I was like, look. We know the questions that you want to ask probably better than you do. And we always ask the questions. It's the answers you don't like. Right. And because they're not on the stand, you know, it's not like they have to swear an oath to tell the truth. A lot of times the answers they want to give are the, the answers they give are the answers they want to give, not necessarily the answers to the question. So, I, I mean, like, I, you know, you just kind of get some perspective after doing it for a long time. Yeah. And I think the other thing people forget, too, is not only are you humans, but the people you're asking the questions to, like, you know, Scott Service and Pete Carroll, they're humans too. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. and I mean, like, you know, I mean, a lot of times they don't have the answers. I mean, like, I, believe me, I tell them, like, my philosophy with that, with, like, players and with with the manager, like, look, like Scott Service one time got mad at me, and he says, why, why do you ask questions you already know the answers to? And I said, because you need to say it. It doesn't matter if I say it or write it. It matters if you say it. I know the answer. I know exactly what you're going to say a lot of times, but I need you to say it so I can put it in my story. We have the sound bite, so you say it. And I was like, the players, I've told them a long time ago, a lot of times, I, you know, I mean, for me, you have the conversations with the leaders of the team. That way you don't have to have it with every player. But if they don't understand, it's like, look, I'll never, I'll never take a cheap shot at you and I'll never question your effort. If somebody else questions your effort, I'll write it, but I'll never sit there and say, well, he's not playing hard because I don't know, you know, or he's not afraid to play through pain because I don't know what you're going through. But I will tell them that like, if you suck, I got to say you suck. If you're terrible, I got to write you're terrible. And I said, but I won't do it cheaply and I won't mock you about it. I'll just write it. Because I said, at the end of the day, my 
reputation as a journalist and, and writing what I see is to be true is more important to me than any relationship I might have with you or whether you're pissed off at me or not. And so that's kind of how we do it. You know, I, I, you know, I make it pretty clear. And I think just doing it long enough, I have that reputation amongst the players that they know I'm fair. And, and so I don't have to, to deal with it as much anymore. Well, and I think too, with you being so upfront about it, it probably, you know, gives them, or I guess they establish more trust with you too, knowing that you're going to be fair about it. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it, you know, but you can sit there and say you're going to be fair. And then I know a lot of guys will say that and then they take some cheap shots or whatever, or write something then they don't show up. If I write something that's tough and critical, I make sure that I'm there the next day to wear it. You know, I've, I've had that before this year, you know? And so like, I'm not afraid of, of confrontation, you know, like if you want to get in my face about something, that's fine. Just know that I'll probably come back at you with a few things as well. <laughs> it's like people, when they get into it with me on Twitter and they say, well, you know, I was like, you know, I can't believe you, you fired back at me. I was like, well, you started it. Don't get mad at me. Cause I'm better at being a, a smart ass than you are. <laughs> you know, I, I've been good at it for a long time. Definitely. So baseball is a worldwide sport. There's players from all over the world. How hard is it to communicate with all the different languages that could potentially be in the clubhouse? Um, it can be real difficult. Uh, you know, the, every team is required to have a, a, an interpreter for Spanish-speaking players. The Mariners actually haven't the last couple of years. They've kind of pieced it together. Um, but that, that's a requirement based on a previous agreement. And then, you know, covering the number of Japanese players as well. Um, that can be, you know, that's an impediment. You know, they, they like Ichiro had a translator for his entire time. He speaks perfectly good English. He understands English perfectly well, but he, one, uses it as kind of a, you know, that way he can't be open to every request. You know, he can funnel out the media requests. And then, too, just like sometimes for him, it's about making sure he communicates exactly what he wants to say properly. Um, you know, you pick up. Japanese, my mom is Japanese, though she doesn't speak any of it. Picking up any stuff from Japanese uh, language is difficult because you just can't, you know, it's so different. Like with Spanish and four years of high school Spanish and a few years in college, I, I can pick up quite a bit and I understand a lot of it. Um, you know, but when they're, they're really, you know, Spanish, Latin guys can really speak fast. So I won't, I'll pick up like every fourth word. We have a basic idea, but you know, that's, you know, I always say every off season, I'm going to brush up on my Spanish or start learning, you know, getting better at it. But, ah, you know, that's what they have interpreters for. I don't want to take away somebody's job if I understand it. Exactly. Well, and the thing, because I took a little bit of Spanish too, is at least I think every country is a little bit different with their Spanish speaking. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Like, um, yeah, it's like the dialect of the Spanish. So like, the, the Mariners had Unieski, Betancourt, and for a while, and then Ariel Miranda, some guys from Cuba, Guillermo Heredia. They, their, their Spanish was very different than, say, Felix Hernandez's Spanish from Venezuela, you know? And, and like, it, it would be like, um, like, just, and then the accents of it all, like somebody from Texas and the, the slang they use, or right. like one, one guy compared it to, like, when you go, to New Orleans and people have a heavy Cajun accent and they have kind of their own words. That's kind of what Cuban is compared to maybe somebody that was from Mexico or from Central America. You know, the, the Spanish is a little different. So, yeah, it's 
it's pretty it's very interesting you know and the one thing is though it's important because a lot of those guys have you know conversations back and forth um in, in spanish and they think that you know they can say a lot of things but if you can pick up on it you can understand a lot of stuff too oh definitely i'm sure they've gotten caught with a few things that maybe they wouldn't say if it was in english uh, <laughs> very much so so the MLB sadly um, has a lockout right now. How has that affected your job, or has it at all? Oh, I mean, yeah, I got a little more free time. Um, <laughs> you know, this time of year, I'd be writing a lot more about transactions, and you know, being kind of tethered to my phone. You know, making sure either texting with agents or sources, or you know, waiting for Jeff Passan or Ken Rosenthal to drop some transaction story because that's you know kind of their job. The national guys really chase the transactions. For me, I mean, if I get one, it's great. If not, you know, no big deal. Um, but yeah, I, you know, you're kind of on call at all times. Now I'm not necessarily on call because we know the lockout isn't going to end anytime soon. So what I'm trying to do is just kind of come up with stories that I can write about the Mariners that are evergreen or whatever. Like I think right now we're just doing positional analysis, the depth chart and everything like that. And, you know, similar to stuff that I was probably having to do during the pandemic, you know, you come up with broader ideas instead of breaking news or stuff like that. Cause like right now, I mean, obviously going into Christmas might be a slower time, but you know, there's a lot of free agents still out there left unsigned, possible trades, all that stuff. Lots of on the back burner now, so I don't really have to worry about that, and that's kind of comforting. You know, you're not worried that something's going to happen, but at the same time, it's also kind of boring. Like writing these kind of, you know, big picture stories is tough because like the Mariners roster could change here in another week. You know, once it gets that one, so mm-hmm. you're just kind of stuck in the middle right now. You're you're like just in a holding pattern waiting. Yeah, I'm. Every day, checking my phone to see if the lockout ends to see what Jerry Depoto yeah. will do next. <laughs> I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. Also, I, I, my guess is like, like they haven't set a deadline for it, but they would like to have it done by first of February so they could kind of get the last little run of offseason stuff and then like you know get get players into camp and stuff and start their progress because you know you start getting. Teams usually report around February 14th, 15th, so you start getting later in the year like that, then it, it causes problems for everyone involved. Definitely. Yeah, I'm hoping they resolve it fairly quickly here. So, as just a regular everyday sports fan, I kind of feel like there's a bias towards New York and, you know, the East Coast. As a guy in the media, do you see that? Yeah, I mean, you know, because... A lot of the major metropolitan markets, you know, are in the East Coast. And so TV, you know, that's where the viewership is. So TV kind of, um, you know, TV kind of, I wouldn't say placates you, but they they have some, you know, they have, you know, if that's where they make their money, that's what they're going to do. You know, that's it's, it's all about money in the long run. Like you t- I tell everybody all the time, you, you know, Tony Kornheiser used to say it, but it was from this, uh, uh, TV producer, the answer to most of your questions is money. Yeah, if there's, if you think there's a East Coast bias, it's because, you know, the population centers on the East Coast generate the most television ratings, you know, or generate the most subscriptions for newspapers and stuff like that. So yeah, in that way, there is, um, you know, obviously LA and Stephanie, you look at the time differences and everything, but yeah, I, I mean, like in terms of programming, but it's all about money. Like ESPN is in love with the SEC football. Why? Because right. they have a massive TV deal with them. And so that's what they, you know, and that's kind of where they're following it. So, 
I mean, there is, but, you know, I think at the same time, like when the Seahawks were really, really good, you know, and they had Richard Sherman and Marshawn and Doug Baldwin, and they had all these personalities, the national guys were out there all the time. They mm-hmm. were national game every week. It's, it's, you know, it's just that you have to work a little bit harder, you know, to be that. I mean, like the Cowboys aren't in the East coast and they're on TV every damn week because True. there's a ton of Cowboys <laughs> fans, you know? So, you know, or Golden State, I mean, like, LeBron and, and Steph, I mean, yeah, there's an East Coast bias, like, the Knicks are big, but people nationally want to see Steph Curry and LeBron play, so they're on TV all the time versus the Knicks, who have nobody you really care about, you know? Yeah, the only... Even, even like, the even the Nets with KD and Harden, they don't compare to, to Steph and, and LeBron. I mean, that, they just draw it, so that's why they're on TV all the time. Exactly. So, you mentioned one of who I think would be the all-time interviewee, Marshawn Lynch. Who was your favorite person you've interviewed in your time as a sports writer? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I actually, funny story, like, um, I had to cover Marshawn. Well, I, I've interviewed Marshawn before. When he, right when he first got traded to the Seahawks from the Bills, you know, back then... I was helping at that time. I was still with the News Tribune, so I would help with the Seahawks coverage a lot more. One of the Seahawks writers is a guy named Eric Williams, who covers the Chargers now. He was my best friend, one of my best friends there, so I'd always help him out. So I interviewed Marshawn a little bit, and he was cool. You know, like he was actually really fun to talk to, and he didn't mind doing the media. And then, you know, some stuff changed. He got, you know, he was charged with a DUI the one year, and his lawyer told him, or his agent told him not to talk to the media, and he kind of liked not having to do it. So that Super Bowl year when they went to Arizona and lost the Patriots and Marshawn was denying media requests, you know, everybody was wondering what he would do at media day. Like my whole job when I went to that Super Bowl was to cover Marshawn Lynch on everything he did. Like whether he talked to the media or not, what he would say, just write the the TikTok of it all because it was huge news at the time. So um, I don't know, like I'm trying to think who my favorite interview would be. In terms of like saying interesting stuff versus, you know, being amenable. Like Doug Baldwin, when he was with the Seahawks, always said interesting stuff, you know, but it, you know, and he was always, he was always pretty interesting. But then again, it's always like once he talks, you have to just stay there because you never know what he's going to say. Same <laughs> with like Richard Sherman. Um, you know, from a baseball standpoint, I really liked, oh, I like, you know, I like Nelson Cruz a lot. I like Robinson Cano. He had a unique perspective because he played in New York and he right. had all this different kind of thinking. Um, you know, just there was this reliever named Joe Bimel who pitched for oh, the yeah. Mariners. He was great. He had pitched for the Dodgers in the World Series and just kind of his team, you know, he's older and his, his teammates called him the most interesting man in the world because he was like the, he looked like the guy from the Dos Equis commercials. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I don't know if there was an exact favorite, you know, like where I just sit there and wow, you know, even now, like, I would really like talking to Jerry Kelnick, the Mariners prospect, because he has a he has an ability to talk about himself and what he was trying to do out in the field, and he can articulate it really well. And he's he's interesting, and he will say something just crazy enough or cocky enough that really you enjoy. <laughs> so, and I don't know, I um, oh yeah, well I, I got to interview Tony Gwynn a long time ago. Oh wow, that was 
pretty freaking cool. Yeah, he was, you know, he was great. You know, like just he could answer questions. He could talk hitting. He was a really good dude about it. Yeah, he was fun. Like, you know, when you interview Griffey, and I get I have a really good relationship with Griffey. Half the time, he's not even talking about what you're asking about. He's just, <laughs> you know, riffing on everything else. But yeah, he's always fun too. Oh, that's awesome. Tony Gwynn's one of the greats, and I, obviously, being a huge Mariners fan, love Griffey, so that's yeah, awesome. Yeah. Um, who were you most worried to interview? You know, who was kind of intimidating, or, you know, has there been anybody like that? Um, well, I remember when I was an uh, intern in 2000, uh, talking to Lou Pinello was a little interesting at times because he's just, he could be so grouchy, you know, and I was a kid and I didn't know very, very well. I didn't know what I was doing half the time. So he was a little intimidating. Uh, Player-wise, no, not really any other guys, you know. Um, like there were guys that didn't like me or I didn't like, like there's uh, Richie Sexton and Jeremy Reed, they didn't really like me and I didn't really like them. But like a couple times I got into it or Jeremy Reed would say something and that was when Adam Jones was with the Mariners and he would tell Jeremy to shut up because I got along with Adam really well. He's like <laughs> one of my favorite guys to cover. Um, but no, I don't think I was really intimidated by anybody. After a while, after you do it, like they're all just guys, you know, like, you know, for me, you know, like players now, nothing really, I never get intimidated, you know, especially like after crossing that Griffey threshold where like I sit and talk with him and BS with him, or, you know, I'll get a random text message from him every once in a while. Like he sent me, he sent me a picture on the day on the Cat Grizz game. He sent me a picture of himself in another guy in Bobcat football shirts. <laughs> and I was like, why are you wearing that? You know, why would you send that? And I, I said, you know, and he says, well, I don't have a Grizz shirt. And I said, you lie. I bought you a Grizz shirt. I have a picture to show it. You know, and I sent him back the picture. And he says, oh, I must have lost that shirt. You'll have to send me another one. But um, so once I kind of got past that threshold, and I'm not really like wowed by anybody. And like when I was first started, you know, when I saw like Ozzie Smith and Greg Maddox, Mark Grace, guys that I really like coming up or growing up, then that was a little different. But yeah, you know, even like when I went to the Hall, the Hall of Fame a couple of years ago for Edgar Martinez's thing, like yeah, you're in the bathroom and Ricky Henderson is standing next to you. That that's a little crazy. Yeah. You, or you see, you know, when Hank Aaron was still alive, walking by a table and Hank Aaron's there. Yeah, you're a little okay then. But like the current player, nah, nobody really intimidates me too much. I mean, just hearing you talk about all these players, my jaw is almost dropping. I mean, you drop Ricky Henderson and Hank Aaron in one conversation. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, I, went like, I went like all Mike Wilbon dropping names. I mean, like, I, don't, I don't know these guys, but like, I'm, you know, just like the Hall of Fame thing is like the coolest thing. I went there for Griffey and Edgar Martinez and like, you know, to be able to go there and some of the access you get, you know, they have a... a they have a uh, reception on the night before, I think it is. Yeah, I think it's the night before. And they have it in the Hall of Fame, in the Hall of Fame, in the, the plaque room. And all the Hall of Famers are there sitting at tables and stuff. So you just kind of randomly will get to see these guys. And, you know, sometimes you wow. talk to them, sometimes you don't. Uh, sometimes they don't want to. Um, but, like, I took my dad there. Uh, for Edgar's deal. My dad loved Edgar Martinez uh, when he was playing. So I took my dad there for Edgar's Hall of Fame thing, and I got to take my dad to that reception. 
and he stand, he says, you know, it's open bar. He goes, I'll go get us a couple beers. You know, we're sitting in there. So he walks over there. I'm kind of watching him, and he's talking to this guy. And I was like, kind of look, and you know, my dad just kind of BSing a little bit, didn't say a whole lot. He comes back. Uh, it's a nice conversation. He goes, yeah, that that tall guy, he's he's really nice. He goes, his English was a little broken, but he's really nice. But yeah, that was Mariano Rivera. He kind of snaps his head back and goes, I was talking to Mariano Rivera. I go, yeah, you were talking to Mariano Rivera. He just asked me if I was in line and, you know, if I was having fun and all this stuff. I was like, yeah, you know, like he just, he didn't realize it. So it was, you know, that kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, you, you sit there and you, you look around and you're like, how the hell did I get here? Like I've said it before, like I'm just a kid from Havre, Montana with a three-point GPA that somehow wound up here, you know, like a few years ago, that same year I got the Mariners played in Japan and I, I took my mom and my aunt to Japan with me. And then the times let me, you know, take a few days off after the series that they played and we stayed, but, you know, I covered Ichiro uh, retiring from baseball, you know, standing on the field watching that and you see all the stuff and you're like, how the hell did I get here? You know, you're like, you feel like Forrest Gump almost. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, what did I do to do this, deserve this stuff? But uh, it's, like, I couldn't imagine, you know, obviously like when I first started doing this job, I thought, oh yeah, I'm going to be a writing for ESPN or I'm going to be writing for Sports Illustrated or, you know, and, and those, those jobs aren't as great anymore. You know, they don't have those kind of the writing jobs and I'm not great. I don't love going on TV. I'll do it. Cause it's good money. Um, but like, even like now, I mean, for what, for what I've been able to get to in my career, uh, versus the reality of where it started. I mean, like I, I, I've exceeded all my expectations, you know, if, I guess if like one of my goals was to be a, a columnist in a major paper, I mean, that might be the next step. I, I don't know where I would go from here. You know, like I look around and I applied for a job covering the nationals at the Washington post cause it's the Washington post, but I don't really want to live in Chicago or New York, you know, maybe LA, but I don't know that I want to cover the Dodgers. Yeah. Man, I mean, just that whole story. I mean, the Hall of Fame is one thing, because that's amazing. And then you had, you went to Japan for Ichiro's last games there. I yeah. mean, I remember seeing the video of Kikuchi, who was who idolized Ichiro. That was the coolest moment I thought of that whole thing. Oh, when he, when he was crying? Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was yeah, cool. I mean, like, you're, you're just standing there, you know, and, and you're like... Oh two feet from each and he's explaining that he's never going to play baseball again. And this is like a guy that has more hits in his professional career counting Japan and major league baseball than Pete Rose. Yeah. You know, you just, you just don't you know like the, the first time, the first, so the Mariners will have a big reception after the hall of fame reception. It's a private deal by invitation only. It's so like the Griffey year. You know, you go there and you're, uh, you know, it's a bunch of media, uh, there's a bunch of people there and like open bar or whatever. And you stand it up there and Cal Ripken Jr. standing there. And you're just like, holy crap. Like, <laughs> you know, and then that year when I took my dad, we, we were at the, the reception at the Hall of Fame and, and Griffey's there and he's with some of the other, he's like with Buner and a bunch of these other Mariners players. And Griffey sees me, he sees my dad and he comes up and he says to my dad, he goes, is that your kid? And, uh, and my dad says, yeah, he goes, he goes, I'm Ken. And my dad, you know, he goes, oh, my dad goes, I'm Ed. And he goes, he goes, I just want to let you know something about your son and being his dad and, and 
my dad goes, okay. He goes, I'm sorry. And I hate my dad. So every time he saw my dad, the rest of the time we were there, he just walk up to my dad and go, hey, man, I'm still sorry. My dad thought it was the best, you know. So it's like, you know, little things like that, you just don't. Like, I mean, like when you're thinking, when I was thinking about being a sports writer, you know, I didn't think about that kind of stuff. You know, I never thought any of this stuff would happen or be possible. Oh, that's amazing. So you've obviously covered a bunch of moments in Seattle history in sports, but what's the best moment that you've covered? Um, I mean, both definitely the Hall of Fame stuff. I mean, I think the the Griffey one, everybody knew he was going to get in, you yeah. know. Uh, I went, um, you know, I got to go uh, that one year. Well, well, I went to the All-Star game a bunch of times, but the, the one year writing the story for that leading into Griffey, and they have all the players around. And so I just went and talked to a bunch of players about what it meant to be, what Ken Griffey Jr. meant to them. and you know, talked about them emulating the swing and everything like that. And so I went around and did that. And that was really cool. Like they were really, you know, that was fun. I mean, I was on that event. Um, so, but when Edgar got in and, you know, cause you know, it had been such a push, I thought that was a lot of fun. The Eastro retirement game was, was pretty crazy. Um, Felix Hernandez's last start. Oh yeah. Um, as a Mariner, that was really emotional. I mean, I'd covered that guy since 2007, you know, and we had a pretty good relationship and I felt like a lot of the, the coverage I did over the last two years of him was some of my best work, you know, the stuff with the Seeger this year as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was funny. I, I didn't, um, you know, the Mariners haven't had very many big moments in terms of like, you know, team success. You know, no, I've got like crazy games. Um, but yeah, you know, and, and then like even in the Super Bowl year, the first Super Bowl year, I, I they asked me to go to New York for the first Super Bowl for the Seahawks. And I said, no, I kind of declined. I'd only been hired at the Times for about a month and a half um, and, and maybe two months. And another kid that was supposed to go, um, that was going to go, they were going to bump another kid off the, off of going to New York and let me go instead. And I just was like, ah, I don't think that's really fair. This kid's been here a long time. Let him go, you know, and I was moving into a different apartment. So I didn't want to have to make all those changes. Um, so the next year I covered the Super Bowl in, in Phoenix, which obviously wasn't the best ending for mm-hmm. Seahawks fans, but it was freaking crazy. Like, I mean, like throw that pick on the one yard line. And I cover, I covered, um, the Jermaine Curse. I covered the NFC Championship game that year where Jermaine Curse caught the ball on the walk-off touchdown. Oh, yeah. On the stands. That was crazy. You know, like, Russell Wilson committed four turnovers in the first half, and they should have lost. And the Packers should have won that game with ease, but because yeah. Mike McCarthy's a dumbass, and they don't know how to <laughs> score, you know, they lose that game. Um, so that, those were cool. Like, because the year before when they went to New York, I didn't cover the game, the 49ers, Seahawks, NFC Championship game. They actually had me fly to Denver and cover the AFC title game between Manning and and Brady when Manning beat Brady in Denver. And oh, man, that was for, a crazy yeah, game. Yeah, it was a great game. And I stayed there for like eight or nine days, cover Broncos practice for a while. So, I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I haven't, I've seen a lot of cool stuff. I mean, I remember 
when I was in at the News Tribune, I covered Kevin Durant's first game as a member of the Seattle SuperSonics. Oh, he wow. Was drafted by. You couldn't believe how thin that guy was, too. He's like, he looked like a, a wet noodle. <laughs> but no, I don't know if there's any one defining moment. You know, like I said, oh, man, this is this is the best thing I've ever covered. Maybe, you know, like, I, I'd probably say the Ichiro game just because of the magnitude and yeah. the emotion and stuff. So Definitely. So you obviously have a ton of stories. What is the story you can't wait to tell your grandchildren? <laughs> well, I don't know that I'll be having any at 46 and no kids now. I don't know. Um, I don't know. I like telling the story about Griffey and my dad. The year that the the year the Bobcats or the Grizz fumbled on the one yard line in Missoula to lose the uh, Cat Grizz game. Yeah, that was a big play. Uh, yeah, we were sitting in. So afterwards, me and my buddies are sitting at this place getting food, and my phone starts buzzing. My buddy looks down, and he goes, why is Ken Griffey Jr. calling you? It says Ken Griffey Jr. is calling. I was like, oh, my God. So I go, what do you want? And he was just like, how the F do you fumble on the <laughs> yard line? How are you? Why? What? Did they run the same play? What are they? And I was like, I go, I said, seriously, you, how, did you watch that game? He goes, yes, I watched that game. And I said, and so you had to call me and rub it. He goes, yeah. He goes, well, I, I, he goes, I'm calling you. And he goes, you got any other Grizz friends you want me to call next? And I was just like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> so stuff like that is kind of, you know, those are kind of moments I tell my kids or, you know, just the funny stuff, you know, more than the games itself or, you know, like, I don't know. When we went to Cooperstown the first time to cover Griffey, me and Larry Stone are calling this guy, um, because of whether we sat um, in the uh, the Chicago airport for 14 hours, and I got drunk like three different times because it was just so long. <laughs> I took two naps, you know. It was just like stuff like that, or crazy travel days. You know, I covered you know, covering James Paxton's no hitter in Canada. Oh yeah, you know, Canadian guy. That was cool. I mean, that was cool. I covered a lot of no hitters. Only I think one by the members. I miss Felix perfect game. I didn't cover that one. I didn't cover Iwakuma's per, or no hitter. I covered the combined no hitter the Mariners had. That's right. And I covered Pax's, but I don't think I had. I watched him get no hit several times. <laughs> covered that. Yeah, sadly that's happened quite a few times, hasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so, being a Seattle sports fan, they had the Sonics at one point. Would you like to see them come back? And do you see it happening? Yeah, I'd love to see him come back. I mean, like, I really loved having the NBA in Seattle. Um, I just, you know, like, when I was, when I first moved out there, I could just, one of my buddies covered the Sonics, I could just say, hey, can I roll up with you tonight, you know, from Tacoma? Can I get a media pass? And so I'll get a credential and, and just go sit, you know, you sat baseline, so you're right there. And mostly I did it just so I could go see players I wanted to see, you know, like, when I got there, the Sonics were pretty bad. They had just traded Ray Allen, and they just they were basically sort of tanking. And uh, so I wanted to see, like, I wanted to see Iverson, and I wanted to see Tim Duncan, and, and so I would just go up and go to games, you know. And I might write like a, you know, if, if there's a Seattle guy in town or something, or like with Marvin Williams, he's kind of from south of Tacoma and, and Port Orchard. I would go and or in Bremerton, I would go and do a quick story on him and, you know, just kind of justify it. But I love being able to, like, on a random Tuesday night, you know, because it's, like, Tuesdays and Thursdays. Right. You know, you don't have anything going on, you know, oh, look, you know, well, maybe it's, like, oh, the 
the Spurs are in town. Let's go see Tony Parker and Manu Ginobili and, and, and Tim Duncan, you know, like, let's go up there. Let's, we'll grab some cheap seats or we'll, we'll grab some seats, scalp some seats or whatever, grab up to Seattle, hang out, you know, grab dinner up there. I love that ability to just go up there and watch a game. And so, yeah, I kind of miss that. I think they'll be back within the next three years. Yeah, it seems like the NBA is expanding and Seattle seems kind of like a no-brainer to expand to. Yeah, I mean, they got that new arena. It's built in, ready to go, and, and they, they want the media market, too. Seattle's got a large enough media market that they want to. Definitely. So I do actually have one last question. Mm-hmm. You said you were in Vegas, <laughs> and um, I'm going to assume it was for the Pac-12 game. Am I correct with that? No, I actually, why I, we thought about going, but I, I went there for a, a concert, Cody Jinks and Randy Rogers band. Oh, okay. We went to that, and, and we thought we were going to go maybe to the Pac-12 game, but with the Grizz playing on that Friday night, we decided not to go. We ended up going to a concert after the Grizz game, but we didn't go. But I was I, we watched a lot of it in the sports book. Well, anyway, what is Allegiant Stadium like, even from the outside? Because being a big Raiders fan, I want to, you know, just kind of get a glimpse of what that's like. It's pretty cool. Like, uh, my buddy who went to the game uh, said it's really, really nice. And some of my buddies that have covered games there said it's very nice. It's kind of a pain in the ass to get to, although there's a tram or a shuttle going from New York, New York, and from Mandalay Bay. So that makes it easy. But, like, all the amenities, it's really wide. It's really nice. Like, it's like these new – it's like SoFi Stadium in um, in L.A. These, these people are – they do it right now, like, because they know, like – the amenities and stuff, like having the right stadium is what brings them in. You know, it's one reason why like T-Mobile Park in Seattle is still like one of the more popular destinations. They still get people, even when the team's crappy, is because the stadium has done really well and they provide all the amenities that people want. And they've continued to adjust. And with, you know, MLB's getting, the, with Seattle getting the All-Star game in a couple of years, I mean, they're they're gonna make it even better, and that's you know that's that's a big deal. And I think from everything that I've heard, is Allegiant Stadium has really done it right. That's awesome. I love T-Mobile. I've been there a few times myself. It's a it's a great stadium. It was Safeco when I went. I still wish it was Safeco. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but, I still call it Safeco most of the time. But, I do know. too. It's always gonna be Safeco to me. But T-Mobile's great too, and they have done it right there. So definitely. Well. Hey, Ryan, you know, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for answering my message and agreeing to do this. It's been awesome to talk to you. Not a problem. Say hi to your family for me, all right, man? I will. All right. Talk to you later. Take it easy. You too.